Democrats pounce on Joe Biden after he talks about working with segregationist senators. Democrats push slavery reparations in the run-up to 2020. And Chuck Todd runs afoul of the woke scolds. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. All righty. So we begin today not with segregationist senators or reparations. We begin today with the breaking news that Iran yesterday shot down a U.S. drone, according to the New York Times, escalating tensions. Iran shot down a U.S. surveillance drone early on Thursday, according to both nations. The nations differed on the crucial issue of whether the aircraft had violated Iranian airspace in the latest escalation in tensions that have raised fears of war between the two countries. I do love, again, the sort of cycle of violence language that is used by the New York Times. It's just the latest escalation in tensions, generalized tensions out there in the universe that have raised fear of war. Actually, it's just that Iran keeps bombing things and like shooting things down. The United States has taken no aggressive military action against Iran, as in none going all the way back to the Obama administration when the Iranians were taking prisoner American soldiers. Iranian officials said that the drone was over Iran. The American military denied that. Each side accused the other of being the aggressor. Obviously, we should take the Iranian contentions with all of the, all of the verifiable, I think, truth that they deserve. I think, I think we, should, we should absolutely take Iran's contentions seriously because they never lie about these things like wanting to develop nuclear weapons or bombing ships or anything supporting terrorists, they're perfectly honest. Obviously, we should take the contentions of the American government and the Iranian government with exactly the same amount of seriousness. Both of the countries said that the downing occurred at 4.05 Iranian time on Thursday, 7.35 p.m. on Wednesday in Washington. The drone was shot down by an Iranian surface-to-air missile system while operating in international airspace, over, international airspace over the Strait of Hormuz, according to U.S. CENTCOM. Again, the Strait of Hormuz is the, the geographic region that is the source of a lot of this tension right now because the Iranians are effectively seeking to bottleneck all oil traffic through the Strait of Hormuz, which is responsible for an enormous amount of the world oil market. They're hoping to drive up the price of oil artificially by preventing a solid supply through the Strait of Hormuz. The United States said this was an unprovoked attack on a U.S. surveillance asset in international airspace. An Iranian attack on an American aircraft, even an unmanned drone, adds a potential flashpoint to the growing list of recent clashes. Also, the White House had late night meetings yesterday. Sarah Huckabee Sanders told news outlets that the president had been briefed on the missile attack and that the administration was monitoring the situation. And then President Trump went on Twitter this, this morning and he tweeted out, Iran made a very big mistake. So if we end up going to war on the basis of a tweet, I'll say it's not ideal. Like we used to have a procedure for this where you went to Congress for permission to go to war and all of this sort of thing. But... It is a little funny. <laughs> Downside, not constitutional. Upside, kind of hilarious. I mean, that Quentin Tarantino kind of, this is like old school Clint Eastwood. You can just see Trump growling to himself, Iran made a very big mistake. They, uh, and then it's just, the bombs launch in five minutes. <sighs> okay, so are we actually going to get into a shooting war with Iran? I think that is very, very unlikely. The fact is that that is the last thing the Iranians want. Forget about what we want. The last thing that the Iranians want is a full-scale shooting war with the United States. The fact is we could just sink their military the way that we did the, the Iranian military back during Operation Praying Mantis. But Iran's continual escalation of affairs is going to lead at some point to the United States having to take some sort of action here, and it's not going to be economic action. So that's not going to devolve into a full-scale shooting war. It's funny because the press seems to think that every time the United States fires a shot that this ends in World War II. That is not the case. You know how many times the United States has fired missiles into particular areas 
You know, I mean, we did it under Trump to Syria like two years ago. It didn't devolve into a full-scale war between Syria and the United States, and we have American troops in Syria right now. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm skeptical of the claim that the Trump administration is ready to send 150,000, 200,000 American troops into the middle of the Middle East. That is just not something that is really on the table. So we'll keep an eye on that, obviously, and we'll keep an eye on President Trump's Twitter feed to determine if he decides to announce any targets via Twitter. <laughs> I guess that's how we're doing this thing now. We're just going to wait, and he's going to be like, the Ayatollah's beach house, go. We'll find out, man. Okay, meanwhile, Joe Biden, they're coming for old Joe. So I've been predicting this since the day that Joe Biden decided that he was going to run for president, is that all the guns would turn on old Joe. And I have to admit, if old Joe had not spent the last few years being just a terrible politician, then I'd feel a lot more sympathy for him because the attacks on Joe Biden today are extraordinarily unfair. I mean, just in all intellectual honesty, they are really, really unfair attacks on Joe Biden. Now, here's the thing. Joe Biden has expressed sympathy for segregationist senators in the past. And Joe Biden has actually said nice things about segregationist senators in the past, not because they were segregationists per se, but because he says lots of nice things about lots of senators because he was, wait for it, in the Senate. This is just something that happens in the Senate. There are lots of people in Congress who praise each other on a regular basis. But now this is just terrible. How dare Joe Biden suggest that he was once civil to people with whom he radically disagrees? And, and again, this is, as I say, it's not unusual. Steve Kornacki, who works over at NBC News, national political correspondent, he points out that Ted Kennedy used to talk about his warm collegial relationship with James Eastland, the senator at issue, in Joe Biden's comments. Does that mean that, that, that Ted Kennedy was a vicious, brutal racist? Is that what's going on there? I really don't think so. Nonetheless, Joe Biden stepped in it because you're not allowed to acknowledge the humanity of people who you disagree with, even people who you think are truly wrong about everything and hold evil principles. You're not allowed to acknowledge their humanity or acknowledge that if you sit in the Senate with them, that sometimes you have to make deals with them. That's very bad. Not allowed to do that. Instead, you have to virtue signal at every turn and not get done, things done in the Senate, I suppose. So here is what happened to break it down. So Joe Biden was speaking at a fundraiser at the Carlisle Hotel in New York City on Tuesday night. And he stressed the need to be able to reach consensus under our system. And he specifically talked about serving with the late senators James Eastland of Mississippi and Herman Talmadge of Georgia, both Democrats who were staunch opponents of desegregation. Eastland was the powerful chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee when Biden entered the chamber in 1973. Biden said, I was in a caucus with James O. Eastland. He never called me boy. He always called me son. And he called Talmadge one of the meanest guys I ever knew. You go down the list of all these guys. He said, well, guess what? At least there was some civility. We got things done. We didn't agree on much of anything. We got things done. We got it finished. But today, you look at the other side, and you're the enemy, not the opposition, the enemy. We don't talk to each other anymore. Oh, so this is enough to ruin Joe Biden. I mean, they are coming for him, and they are coming with pitchforks. They are coming with pitchforks. I'll get to exactly the angle of attack in one second. First, in geopolitical instability news, Iran is obviously escalating tensions in the Middle East. They announced this week that they're going to break the uranium stockpile limit they agreed to under the nuclear deal. It's not a coincidence that gold prices have been steadily rising since Iran was bombing tankers. That's not a coincidence because as I've been telling you for the past four years, gold is a safe haven against uncertainty. When people feel chaos in the wind, they start to buy gold. Can you afford another hit to your retirement like the last downturn when the S&P dropped 50%? The company I trust with precious metal purchases is Birch Gold Group. Right now, 
Thanks to a little-known IRS tax law, you can even move that IRA or eligible 401k into an IRA backed by physical gold and silver. It's perfect for people who want to protect their hard-earned retirement savings from any future geopolitical uncertainty. Look back historically. When the bottom falls out of everything else, gold tends to safeguard savings. So go contact Birch Gold Group right now. Get a free information kit on physical precious metals. See if diversifying into gold and silver makes sense for you. This comprehensive 16-page kit reveals how gold and silver can protect your savings, how you can legally move that IRA or 401k out of stocks and bonds into a precious metals IRA if that's something you're interested in. To get that no-cost, no-obligation kit, text BEN to 474747. Again, text BEN to 474747. That's my name, to 474747 for the informational kit on investing in precious metals. Okay, so Joe Biden had the gall, the temerity to suggest that if you really disliked somebody, if you held principles different from somebody else, if you didn't agree with somebody, you still had to get things done in the Senate. This is very bad. You're not allowed to say that in the modern Democratic Party. And so it was woke scolds activate. Now, this is all cynical. We all know how cynical this is. Joe Biden was not saying that the segregationist principles of these senators were good. He was not saying that these were good, wonderful men. There's no evidence that he said that about these guys. Instead, he said that we tried to be civil and we achieved civility and we worked together. I thought for a second that that was what politics was, was all about, actually. But no, it turns out that politics is more about showing that you hate somebody more than, than the other guy hates that person. So all of the Democrats in the 2020 race jump on Joe Biden. Specifically, this is a rich vein for them because Joe Biden is doing exceedingly well with black voters right now. He's doing great with black voters right now. And so there are a bunch of candidates ranging from Kamala Harris to Cory Booker, specifically Cory Booker, who really needs a lot of black support if he's going to start climbing in the polls. He's got no white support at this point. Elizabeth Warren jumping into the fray as well. Bernie Sanders jumping into the fray. Everybody jumping on Joe Biden with the suggestion that what? Like he's too friendly towards segregation? That Joe Biden... So a couple questions on this. One, if Joe Biden was truly friendly towards segregation, why didn't anybody in the media notice this for, you know, the eight years when he was vice president under a black president? Why did nobody notice this? Because it turns out that Joe Biden has bragged before on national television that he comes from a slave state, for example. He did this back in 2007, I believe. Why exactly didn't anybody notice this at the time? Weird, weird how the media are finally starting to pay attention to Joe Biden's odd musings on race. I mean, this is old stuff, but hadn't heard this surfaced until Democrats decided, hey, wait a second, we have some questions about old Joe. Isn't it odd how we only find out that Beto O'Rourke was part of a hacking group and is also a giant weirdo with no political abilities as soon as he stops running against Ted Cruz? Isn't it weird that we only find out that Joe Biden is apparently a weirdo on race as soon as he starts running against a bunch of Democrats the media like better than Joe Biden? Hmm. It's as though there's an agenda at work. Hmm. Here's Joe Biden flashback. What kind of a chance would a Northeastern liberal like Joe Biden stand uh, in the South if you were running in Democratic primaries against Southerners like Mark Warner and uh, John Edwards? Better than anybody else. And you don't know my state. My state was a slave state. My state is a border state. My state is the eighth largest black population in the country. My state is anything from a northeast liberal state. Um, you probably shouldn't drop at the very beginning that it was a slave state as like a thing that you are you're bragging about. That's not like a good thing, actually. But obviously, he's not saying that it being a slave state was a good thing. And this is the thing. When Joe Biden was on the good side of the media, everybody sort of took his words for him just being an idiot and him gaffing. And now everybody is taking it as though he is a borderline vicious racist. And then they're using plausible deniability. So this was the strategy of Cory Booker, who came out 
and effectively suggested that he was a racist and then went, ran to his crying room and hid as soon as Joe Biden called him on it. So Cory Booker put out a statement about Joe Biden. He said, you don't joke about calling black men boys. Men like James O. Eastland used words like that and racist policies that accompanied them to perpetuate white supremacy and strip black Americans of our very humanity. Vice President Biden's relationships with proud segregationists are not the model for how we make America a safer and more inclusive place for black people and for everyone. I have to tell Vice President Biden, as someone I respect, he is wrong for using his relationships with Eastland and Talmadge as examples of how to bring our country together. And frankly, I'm disappointed he hasn't issued an immediate apology for the pain his words are dredging up for many Americans. He should. And so Cory Booker goes out and attacks Biden. And he's effectively calling him a racist. I know. Cory Booker then claimed, no, no, I wasn't calling him a racist. So then what are you complaining about? Like, really, what's the complaint? If you're not suggesting that he is a closet segregationist or has closet segregationist sympathies or that he's treating segregation and segregationists with too kind a hand and that that has nothing to do with racism, then what exactly is the complaint? It's pretty obvious what the complaint is. It's pretty obvious what Cory Booker is doing here and the rest of the Democratic candidates. It is deeply cynical. It's really, really cynical. We'll get to Joe Biden's response, what the rest of the Democrats had to say about this, what exactly they're trying to do. And why Joe Biden, frankly, is suffering from a bit of schadenfreude. He kind of deserves it. We'll get to that in just one second. First, Ring's mission is to make neighborhoods safer. So you know that I care deeply about the safety of my house and my neighborhood. I mean, the FBI arrested somebody like two months ago for trying to threaten to kill my family and me. So I am very concerned with neighborhood safety. You might already know about Ring's smart video doorbells and cameras that protect millions of people everywhere. Ring helps you stay connected to your home anywhere in the world. So if there's a package delivery or a surprise visitor, you'll get an alert. You'll be able to see, hear, and speak to them all from your phone. That's thanks to HD video and two-way audio features on Ring devices. Again, I love my Ring devices. We have them on our front gate. As a listener, you have a special offer on a Ring starter kit available right now. With a video doorbell and a motion-activated floodlight cam, the starter kit has everything you need to start building that ring of security around your home. Make your home more safe and more secure. Just go to ring.com slash Ben. That's ring.com slash Ben. You don't need to be a prominent political commentator to want your house to be more secure. And the fact is that many people who are attempting to break and enter will ring the doorbell to see if you're home first. Ring prevents that. They ring the doorbell. It goes right to your phone. You can answer it. Go to ring.com slash Ben. That's ring.com slash Ben and get that starter kit. Everything you need to build that ring of security. Ring.com slash Ben. Okay, so Cory Booker comes after Joe Biden. And it's not just Cory Booker, obviously. It's also Bernie Sanders, who is fading in the polling, desperately trying to grasp with all of his socialist might, all of the might left in the tips of those pudding stained fingers. He's trying to grip onto whatever level of support he still has. So Joe Biden, so Joe Biden attacked by Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders with block of wood, Chris Cuomo. Look, we all have to work with people with whom we have very different points of view. I do it every day. Uh, but I think to be singing the praises of people who were vicious segregationists uh, is not something that anybody... But he was do. talking about working with them. Is that the same thing well, as singing their praises? I'm not so sure about that, but that's all. My goodness. Okay, I mean, that is so... I mean, Chris Cuomo actually saying a true thing. Good for Chris Cuomo there, by the way. Like, saying a true thing, every so often it happens. Broken clock is right twice a day. But the fact that... The fact that Bernie said, well, I don't know. Maybe he actually loves segregation secretly. Weird. You weren't saying that like five seconds ago when he was vice president of the United States. Very, very odd to see all these Democrats suddenly realizing that old Joe is a vicious racist. And as I say, there's some schadenfreude to this. I mean, it was Joe Biden who was calling Mitt Romney a vicious racist five minutes ago based on literally nothing because Joe Biden is just as scuzzy a politician as all the rest of these, as all the rest of these dolts. Here is Joe Biden doing this routine back in 2012. 
Look at their budget and what they're proposing. Romney wants to let the, he said in the first hundred days, he's going to let the big banks once again write their own rules. Unchain Wall Street. They're going to put y'all back in chains. I said that in front of a black audience. Going to put y'all back in chains. What a, what a, so he deserves everything that he is getting on just a cosmic level. But it is kind of hilarious to watch and, and sad in the sense that if you like truth, it's sad to watch these Democrats pile on Biden for making the fairly innocuous remark that a bunch of people, he was taking an extreme example. The example doesn't work if he says, you know who I agreed with a lot, John McCain, and then we made deals. That doesn't actually work. The entire example that he was using is predicated on the fact that he disagreed with someone and thought that they were bad people. That's the whole example. The, the left has gone so far that I'm now defending Joe Biden. What have you people done to me? How am I the Joe Biden defender today? Because I still care a little bit about honesty and Democratic candidates don't, apparently. So Senator Kamala Harris, who is also black and also running for president and also cynical, said, if those men had their way, I wouldn't be in the United States Senate on, and on this elevator right now. She's talking about Senators Eastland and Talmadge, right? So what does that have to do with what Joe Biden said? And then you have Bill de Blasio, who, who strangled a groundhog and then went on Twitter and wrote, it's 2019, and Joe Biden is longing for the good old days of civility, typified by James Eastland. It's past time for apologies or evolution from Joe Biden. He repeatedly demonstrates he is out of step with the values of the modern Democratic Party. And then in the most cynical fashion, de Blasio tweets out a picture of himself with his wife, who happens to be black. The idea being, I suppose, that Joe Biden would have opposed that or is okay with people who oppose that or something. Pretty amazing, amazing stuff. Now, Joe, and by the way, the, the most extreme folks, of course, are the woke scolds on the left who come for Joe Biden. Dan Savage, who is just a disgusting human being. I mean, Dan Savage is the worst in, in a variety of ways. A man so gross that he once volunteered for the Gary Bauer campaign in 2000. And because he hated Gary Bauer, when he obtained the flu, Dan Savage, he decided to go around licking the doorknobs in the office so as to give all of the other staffers the flu. So Dan Savage, who is now the voice of tolerance, apparently, right? he runs one of these anti-bullying groups, even though he is one of the bigger bullies in modern media. He tweeted out, can't say you've never had a racist bone in your body when you were just sucking a dead segregationist bleep. What a kind anti-bullying guy Dan Savage is. Really, really nice guy, Dan Savage. My, my favorite... Part of this is when there was an MSNBC anchor yesterday talking about all of this, and the MSNBC anchor called all of the segregationist senators Republicans. MSNBC has issued no apology or, or correction, by the way. These were all Democrats. Still to come, Joe Biden references his relationships with two former Republican colleagues at an event in New York City. The only problem, they were both segregationists. Well, there was another problem, which is that they were both Democrats, but, you know, I guess MSNBC doesn't care about that sort of stuff. Okay, so... Cory Booker says what he says, and he is you know, leading the charge here because Cory Booker is desperately trying to wrest away control of some segment of the black vote, particularly in southern primaries like South Carolina, away from Joe Biden. And Joe Biden responds exactly how Joe Biden should respond, frankly. I mean, Joe Biden should say, he should have responded this way on the Hyde Amendment. Joe Biden's entire appeal right now is with the moderate and conservative segments of the Democratic Party, which, yes, does still exist. If you look at the polls right now, he is extraordinarily narrowly leading the rest of the field among liberals. It's like 25 to 24 over people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Okay, but when it, comes to, when it comes to moderate voters in the Democratic Party, conservative voters, he's up on the rest of the field by a margin of 30 points. If he starts to fade because he starts to kowtow on things like the Hyde Amendment, if he kowtows here, 
then he's admitting guilt and he can't do that and he shouldn't do that. So Joe Biden responds, in my opinion, particularly appropriately here. He slaps at Cory Booker. You're not allowed to do this, by the way, according to the media. If you slap at Cory Booker, so they have this catch-22. Cory Booker effectively implies that you are secretly a racist or too kind to racists. And then you respond the way Biden does. And then they call you a racist for responding to Cory Booker. Here is Joe Biden trying to respond. How does it feel that uh, your Democratic rivals are implicitly saying that you have issues talking about race? They know better. Are you going to I apologize so. like Cory Booker apologize has called for? for what? Cory Booker has called for it. He's Corey asking you to apologize. apologize. He knows better. There's not a racist bone in my body. I've been involved in civil rights my whole career. Period. 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 Okay, he is right. And Cory Booker does know better. Cory Booker is a cynical player, a very cynical player. Okay, there are people who know him going back to his days in Newark, where he was pretending to cultivate bipartisan relationships, which he abandoned as soon as he became a senator from New Jersey. He has shifted his positions on a wide variety of issues. He knows better than this. He routinely castigates people he pretends to be friends with, Cory Booker. Joe Biden is 100% right about this. We'll get to Cory Booker's response. So Cory Booker then goes on CNN last night and plays the victim. Now, Cory Booker, who attacked Biden over something Biden said that actually should not be all that controversial. Again, I hate segregationists. Segregationists are wrong. Their perspective is evil. They were also sitting in the United States Senate and you had to work with them to get things done sometimes. If this is the new Democratic Party, then you know, count anyone of reasonable dint out. Here's Cory Booker being interviewed on CNN by, who is this, Don Lemon interviewing him? Yeah, Don Lemon on CNN. And Cory Booker attacking Joe Biden anew. Are you going to apologize? Uh, you know, the vice president said I should know better, and this is what I know. As a black man in America, I know the deeply harmful and hurtful uh, usage of the word boy and how it was used to dehumanize and degrade. This is deeply disappointing. We waited for him to apologize. He didn't until uh, the next day. And whether I'm running for president or not, as many people today have been, on Juneteenth, no less, uh, calling out for the vice president to, to acknowledge that his words were harmful and hurtful. On Juneteenth, no less. Yeah, you're right. Probably Joe Biden, you know, opposed the Emancipation Proclamation, which is what is what Juneteenth is celebrating. He's so cynical, Cory Booker. My goodness. He is he is a he is a rehearsed, mechanical, cynical guy. I mean, that is a cynical dude right there. And Joe Biden has every right to fire back on Cory Booker. And he shouldn't stop firing back on Cory Booker because what Booker is doing there is really, really ugly, really ugly. Biden's spokesperson came out yesterday and talked about this as well. Pointed this is Anita Dunn, Biden campaign surrogate and former Obama staffer very early on in his in his campaign in 2008. And she points out that both Booker and Elizabeth Warren, who also attacked Biden over this, have touted their work with GOP senators in the past, which is all that Biden was doing here. But again, this is a cynical ploy to separate Biden from a black base of support. That's all this is. People in the Senate work all the time with uh, members of the other party whose positions are repugnant to all of us as Democrats. You know, Cory Booker, who has worked with Jeff Sessions on many things. Um, Elizabeth Warren talks about how she's worked with Chuck Grassley, who led the fight for Brett Kavanaugh and who wouldn't even meet with Merrick Garland. And Elizabeth Warren tells the story about how she has worked with Chuck Grassley for over-the-counter hearing aids to save money for people. The reality sure, is but, that but none of these at some people point, are currently point, espousing segregationist views. Okay, so Anita Dunn getting just raked over the coals for all of this, and the media going out and really digging up as much material as they possibly can on Joe Biden now. So it's open season on Joe Biden. And again, this is all really cynical. All this stuff has been out there for a very long time. Joe Biden did not say anything here 
that is particularly new or groundbreaking. The new implication that Joe Biden is secretly a racist or the times have passed him by, it's a cynical invention. Again, I don't like Joe Biden. I think Joe Biden is just as cynical as many of the politicians attacking him today. What I do hate is people who are lying. And what we are watching right now are a bunch of people who are telling deliberate lies about Joe Biden, specifically because they are looking to open a racial gap. Reopening racial gaps in the country to suggest that America is rife with racism to get ahead politically is one of the ugliest aspects of our politics right now. And we'll talk more about that in just one second. First, getting fit, staying healthy, it always sounds easier said than done. Open fit is bringing you something new. It makes it even easier never to miss a sweat session. So I work out like every day, which is why I am just jacked, guys. But one of the ways that I get jacked is that I use OpenFit because sometimes you can't make it to the gym. Sometimes it hits like eight o'clock at night and it turns out that you haven't worked out that day. Well, OpenFit takes all of the complexity out of losing weight and getting fit. It's a brand new, super simple streaming service that allows you to work out from the comfort of your living room in as little as 10 minutes a day. Actually, very often I'll work out twice a day because that's the kind of dude I am. I'll go work out and then at night my wife comes home from being a doctor and she is ready to work out and it's like eight o'clock at night. And so we put on OpenFit and we go for it. OpenFit has changed the way I work out with my coach Shapiro. You can join me on a fitness journey personalized just for you. Again, use my coach Shapiro. Start using OpenFit for your journey to a healthier life. Right now, during the OpenFit 30-day challenge, my listeners get a special extended 30-day free trial membership to OpenFit where you can lose up to 15 pounds in 30 days when you text Shapiro to 303030. You'll get full access to OpenFit, all the workouts and the nutrition information totally free. Again, just text Shapiro to 303030. That's text Shapiro to 303030. Okay, go check it out right now. Okay, so speaking of reopening racial wounds deliberately in order to make political hay, the entire Democratic Party is now engaged in this process. They're reopening racial wounds by talking about slavery reparations. Now, I think we can all acknowledge, and in fact fought a giant war to acknowledge, that slavery was a grave evil. I think that everyone acknowledges at this point in American life, 50 years after the Civil Rights Act, I think everyone acknowledges that Jim Crow was deeply evil, was a deeply evil thing. I don't think you can find an American in public life who will argue that Jim Crow was not a deeply evil thing. I don't think you can find many Americans at all, as in like you might be able to count them on one hand and they all hang out with Richard Spencer. I think that there, there are very few Americans who are walking around going, you know what would be great? A systemized way of keeping the black person down. I'm like that, that is not a thing in modern America. Now, I know that this is anathema to the left. Many folks on the left want to suggest that Racism is inherent in American life. It's the, it's the stain in our DNA that will never go away. Barack Obama used to make claims like this when he was president. I thought it was ugly then. I think it's ugly now. Talking about slavery reparations, which is inherently unworkable. This is the thing about slavery reparations. Not a single proponent of slavery reparations has ever put forth a proposal that makes any sort of logical, reasonable, legal sense. None. The only reason to discuss this is to imply that people who oppose slavery reparations don't do so on the basis of impracticality, or the immorality of slavery reparations. They do so on the basis of pure, unadulterated racism because they don't take the legacy of, 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 of racism and slavery seriously enough. That's the implication Democrats are trying to draw here, which is why I think that they were having congressional hearings on an issue that is never going anywhere. That's why they did this. Okay, so they had congressional hearings yesterday. Now, let me just point out that among the brutal, vicious racists who once opposed slavery reparations is Barack Obama. Here's Barack Obama circa 2008 being asked about slavery reparations. Every single Democratic candidate opposed slavery reparations in 2008, except for Dennis Kucinich, who was considered a nut job because he is a nut job. Here's Barack Obama answering the question. Senator Obama, your position on reparations? I think the reparations we need uh, right here in South Carolina is investment, for example, in our schools. I did a town hall meeting 
in Florence, South Carolina, uh, in an area called the Corridor of Shame. They've got buildings uh, that students are trying to learn in that were built right after the Civil War. Uh, and we've got teachers uh, who are not trained to teach the subjects they're teaching in, high uh, dropout rates. We've got to understand that there are corridors of shame all across the country. And if we make the investments and understand that those are our children, that's the kind of reparations that are really going to make a difference it, in anyone, America right it, now. Okay, so it, it used to be okay to say this sort of stuff. It used to be fine to say this sort of thing. No longer, apparently. Apparently, you're no longer allowed to say anything remotely approaching this. If you do, this means you're a racist. So I guess Barack Obama back in 2008 was a racist because he refused to take into account the legacy of slavery. That apparently is according to Senator Cory Booker. So Booker, who again is trying to make his bones by bringing race to the center of the national conversation once again, he was called to testify in front of the House Democrats as part of his 2020 campaign. That is the only reason he's there. There's nothing that makes Cory Booker an expert on reparations. There's nothing that makes Cory Booker an expert on slavery. There's nothing that makes Cory Booker an expert on the wealth gap. There's nothing that makes Cory Booker an expert on any of these topics. And yet he ends up in front of the House committee where he basically gets to do a presidential stump speech about how America is inherently and brutally racist. I wonder about having the last word. What happens when the last word is no words, when it's silence? And I feel a sense of anger where we are in the United States of America, where we have not had direct conversations about a lot of the root causes of the inequities and the pain and the hurt manifested in economic disparities, manifested in health disparities, manifested in a, a criminal justice system that is indeed a form of new Jim Crow. And so we as a nation have not yet truly acknowledged and grappled with racism and white supremacy that has tainted this country's founding and continues to persist in those deep racial disparities and inequalities today. So this here's, is okay, we can stop him there. This is such absolute unmitigated nonsense. The idea that we have not had these conversations and are not having these conversations, there's a reason Ta-Nehisi Coates is famous. Okay, it's not because he's a wonderful writer. He's famous. James Baldwin is famous. There are, the, there are lots of famous black authors who have written on these topics for decades. We've not been having a racial conversation in this country for years. Truly? That's the line that Cory Booker is going with? We'll get to Ta-Nehisi Coates, who was also called to testify because he wrote a very purple essay for The Atlantic a few years back about slavery reparations. The entire essay was basically him describing how evil slavery was. Agree. Truly evil. Maybe we should have fought a war that killed 600,000 Americans to end it. Oh, wait, we did. Maybe then we should have spent a century in the North trying to overturn the legacy of Jim Crow. Maybe we should have passed a Civil Rights Act, a very far-ranging Civil Rights Act, in the 1960s. Maybe we should have spent decades since then trying to construct government policy to stop state-sponsored racism. Maybe we should have done all... We've been having these conversations. I'm bewildered by folks who say we have not been having these conversations. Of course we've been having the conversations. Just because people disagree with you on policy doesn't mean the conversation hasn't taken place. We'll get to more of this in just a second. We'll get to Ta-Nehisi Coates' commentary, which is very much like Cory Booker's commentary, the idea being that slavery is responsible and Jim Crow is responsible for all disparity between black and white income and wealth in America, and therefore reparations are necessary. We'll get to why this is not actually factually true. And we'll get to that in just a second. First, you shouldn't have to choose between overpriced designer sunglasses and cheap shades that will not last you this summer. That's why I'm not going to wear anything other than movement sunglasses. They're really terrific. You've heard me talk about movement disrupting the watch industry. Now they're doing it again 
with sunglasses. The LA-based accessories brand has hundreds of premium, affordable sunglass styles to choose from. With their free shipping and returns policy, you can try on as many styles as you want right from home. I have a pair of Movement sunglasses, so does my wife. They are fantastic, and they don't cost you an arm and a leg. Movement sunglasses start at 60 bucks. No pair prices over 95 bucks. So you're guaranteed to find a style you love with quality that doesn't break the bank. Get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to mvmt.com Shapiro. See why movement keeps growing. Check out their expanding collection. Go to mvmt.com Shapiro. Go join the movement. That's mvmt.com Shapiro. mvmt.com Shapiro. I love my movement watch. I love my movement sunglasses. You will too. Go check them out at mvmt.com slash Shapiro right now and join the movement. That's mvmt.com slash Shapiro. Okay, we're going to get to the wealth gap, how much of it is due to historic discrimination. The answer, some, but not nearly all. We're going to talk about whether it is the same thing to deserve a reparation as it is to actually suggest that a reparation would be helpful, which is kind of a separate question. We'll get to all of that in just a second. First, you need to go subscribe over at Daily Wire. Go over to dailywire.com right now, $9.99 a month. You can get a subscription to this show. When you do get the subscription, you get all sorts of goodies, including early access to our Sunday special. This week's Sunday special features the great one, Mark Levin, who stopped by for a chat. Here's a little bit of what it sounded like. Autocracy is a bad thing, whether it's practiced one-on-one in the playground or whether it's practiced by government. And that's why I started to say, wait, 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 I like liberty, I like individualism, I like to be left alone, I like to kind of do what I want to do. And if that's the way you think, then big government and the left is not your answer. It's a really great conversation. We cover a lot of ground ranging from Trump and the 2020 election to kind of the roots of constitutionalism in the United States. We talk a little religion. Go check it out. The Sunday special with Mark Levin when you subscribe. Also, when you become a subscriber, you get early access to tickets for things like our backstage live event, which is happening one night only, August 21st, Terrace Theater, Long Beach, California. I really look forward to seeing you there because, frankly, do you think I want to spend my night there? But if you're there, then it makes it all worth it, guys. I will be there. Daily Wire God King Jeremy Boring, who's unverified on Twitter, will be there. Andrew Claven will be there. Michael Knowles will be there, I hope, cleaning the seats. We'll be taking your questions live from the audience, which is always the best part. Don't ask Knowles any questions. Please don't. Tickets go on sale to the public this Friday. Today only, Daily Wire subscribers get the pre-sale ticket access. This is pretty important because there are only 300 VIP tickets available. That includes premium seating, photos, meet and greets with each of us, a gift from me, And more, oh, I can't wait to see what gift I'm going to give you. I haven't even thought about it yet. Really, I need to think about what you specifically would like. Head on over to dailywire.com slash backstage to get your tickets. Come join us for this one epic evening. Go check it out over at dailywire.com slash backstage. Also, do the annual subscription instead of the monthly. That way you get the leftist tiers, hot or cold tumbler, which you will vastly enjoy. It fills with tiers from Media Matters for America. Every, Every time a subscriber subscribes, Media Matters weeps. Help us make Media Matters weep. By subscribing over at dailywire.com, since they are spending every waking hour apparently trying to take things from this show out of context, I hear you, Media Matters. I see you there. Go check us out. Subscribe. Help insulate us against the stupidities of the militant left trying to deplatform shows they don't like. Go check us out. We are the largest, fastest-growing conservative podcast and radio show in the nation. Alrighty, so Ta-Nehisi Coates also stops by again, famous because he's written a bunch of very purple books that are basically bad James Baldwin knockoffs. Like the thing about James Baldwin is dude was actually a really talented writer. Ta-Nehisi Coates, I think, is one of the more overrated writers and muddy thinkers in America right now. I just think that his thinking is, is messy and muddy and chaotic. There are a lot of thinkers like that at the New York Times, and Ta-Nehisi Coates, not at the New York Times, also a muddy thinker. In any case, 
Ta-Nehisi Coates steps up in front of the committee and you'll see him basically wrap everything into a ball. So it's like slavery is bad. Agree. Jim Crow, bad. Agree. Also, all discrimination, all disparities, discrimination. Don't agree. Also, some people have been victimized. Maybe they deserve some form of recompense. Maybe agree. Also, the only way to heal our national wound is to do this. Disagree. He just wraps all of this up in a ball and then throws it out there as though this is self-justifying, incorrect. Okay, here's, here's Ta-Nehisi Coates. It was 150 years ago, and it was right now. The typical black family in this country has one-tenth the wealth of the typical white family. Black women die in childbirth at four times the rate of white women. And there is, of course, the shame of this land of the free, boasting the largest prison population on the planet, of which the descendants of the enslaved make up the largest share. The matter of reparations is one of making amends and direct redress, but it is also a question of citizenship. In H.R. 40, this body has a chance to both make good on its 2009 apology for enslavement and reject fair weather patriotism. Okay, so him wrapping up all of these statistics here, you know, trying to suggest that the difference between black women dying in childbirth and white women dying in childbirth, that that is a reflection of slavery or Jim Crow. They didn't have slavery or Jim Crow for a long time over in Europe. And in Europe, the black and white birth rates, death during birth rates are, are very similar to the United States. So there's just not a lot of evidence to support all that. So basically the argument for reparations is threefold. It's threefold. And there's some, and we'll talk about sort of the merits and demerits of each of these arguments, because I think that it is worthy of examination since we are talking about it. So number one, there is this idea that there are folks who are living today who deserve recompense for things that are done 150 years ago. Typically, the answer to that is no. If somebody hasn't done anything to you in your lifetime, you do not deserve recompense for that. If somebody has done something to you now, you deserve recompense to that. So I have a lot of sympathy for the idea that if you, if you are a person who lived during the Jim Crow South and you were deprived of the ability to buy a house, then at least there's a feeling that you deserve some sort of recompense from the people who are trying to harm you. But you have to have been specifically harmed. In other words, I'm a Jew. I didn't get any sort of, of redress from the German government for the Holocaust because my family was over in America, my direct family. We had extended family in, in the Holocaust, but my direct family was over here. So I'm not owed anything by the German government in Holocaust reparations. If, however, somebody survives the Holocaust, they get some sort of reparations from the German government. That makes some sort of sense. You suffer the harm. You deserve some sort of recompense. Instead, what is being done is to broaden that concept out to the idea that if you are black in America, just inherently right now, you, do, you don't have to show any evidence that, that you were specifically targeted by Jim Crow or by slavery. You can't by, by slavery because it's been a while. And Jim Crow, it's hard to say that, that Jim Crow has targeted you when you were born in 2002, for example. But the idea is that every disparity is due to this sort of discrimination and therefore a broad-based solution is the answer. Well, in a second, I'm going to explain how much of the wealth gap we're going to try and estimate how much of the wealth gap is due to slavery and Jim Crow and how much is not. So that matters only in the sense that if you are trying to determine you know, whether slavery and Jim Crow are, are really responsible for the entire difference in, in economic performance and economic wealth between black and white, you should actually examine the statistics. That sort of stuff matters. You can't just throw out every disparity and suggest that that is due to underlying discrimination. Also, as a corollary, very important to note, that disparities exist within every group. Discrimination has happened to a bevy of groups in the United States. People in the United States are not talking about reparations for the Chinese who were viciously discriminated against when they came to the United States. Reparations are not being talked about for Jews who are barred from a lot of the same places that blacks were barred from for many decades in the United States. Reparations are not talked about 
for a wide variety of groups that have been discriminated against in the United States. And the reason those reparations aren't talked about is because to bring history forward and then suggest that as a descendant of somebody who was discriminated against, you are therefore owed something by a descendant of somebody who discriminated. Now, I never quote the Bible, but I think the Bible happens to be correct on the proposition that you don't make a child pay for the sins of their parents. That, that, that is a recipe for a society that is disastrous in, in, its, in its ability to actually heal wounds. Okay, but let's talk about the wealth gap issue. So yesterday on my radio show, I talked specifically about the wealth gap. I said some of the wealth gap is inherently due to slavery and Jim Crow, and much of the wealth gap is not due to slavery and Jim Crow. This apparently is enough for media matters to clip me out of context and suggest that I'm saying that the entire wealth gap is due to individual choice, which of course is not at all what I said, even in the clip that they used, because they're idiots, because they're absolute fools. Okay, Coleman Hughes, who was called to testify by the Republicans yesterday in the slavery reparations, in the slavery reparations hearing, he testified about slavery reparations, and then he was insulted for it. Here's what he had to say, and then we're going to go through the reason he was actually called, which is that he's done a very solid analysis, dating back to July 2018, of exactly how we should view the wealth gap in the United States. Reparations, by definition, are only given to victims. So the moment you give me reparations, you've made me into a victim without my consent. The question is not what America owes me by virtue of my ancestry. The question is what all Americans owe each other by, by virtue of being citizens of the same nation. And the obligation of citizenship is not transactional. It's not contingent on ancestry. It never expires, and it can't be paid off. For all these reasons, Bill H.R. 40 is a moral and political mistake. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Hughes. And then he was booed. Chill, 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 chill. He was presumptive, but he still has a right to speak. He's presumptive, but he still has a right. How dare he say things I disagree with, says Steve Cohen of Tennessee. Okay, so the, the fact that he is, that, that what, what Coleman Hughes says there, which is that not every black person in America is a victim. I think that's true. The left would like uh, pretty much every black person, pretty much everybody in America to feel like a victim. But certainly black folks in America, they would like them to feel like victims, even though the philosophy of being a victim of America is one of the chief obstacles to achievement in America. And when I talk about individual choice and how you can rise from poverty, I think that's a, a fairly inspiring message, a lot more inspiring than America owes you a check because your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was a slave or because your grandfather suffered in Jim, Jim Crow, Alabama. It seems to me a better message to suggest not that your neighbor in your dorm room at, at Harvard owes you a check because of the color of his skin and the color of your skin. It seems like a better message to say, make these decisions that are good and you will rise out of poverty. So again, let's start with, let's try and break this down. So the argument number one is that certain people deserve reparations. Again, I think if you were specifically harmed, then there's an argument that you deserve something. The question is from whom? From whom? So you deserve it from the people who discriminated against you, presumably not from their grandkids who did not discriminate against you. Number two, just because there's a vast wealth gap does not mean that that entire wealth gap or your personal situation is a result of discrimination. On a broad level, some of it is, just on average, but that doesn't mean that all of it is or that your specific situation is. This is how statistics work. So Coleman Hughes, who was ripped up and down for this, Ray Sani, who writes for HBO, tweeted out that it was fine to call Coleman Hughes a C-word, a C-word, C-O-O-N, right? Like the racial slur. This is what Ray Sani wrote. Perfectly fine. You can call him that until midnight Pacific Standard Time. Why? Because he disagrees with ta Coates, as do, by the way, one-third of black Americans. 
And then Jamel Bowie of the New York Times, always tolerant, always kind. He tweets out, will the Republican members of the Subcommittee on the Constitution, Civil Rights, and Civil Liberties have anyone serious speaking against reparations? Or will they just invite Candace Owens to do her thing again? Well, Coleman Hughes actually is a serious human who has written a serious analysis of the wealth gap. It's available at Quillette. He talks about the fact that the, he, he has a long, long piece in which he talks about slavery and American prosperity. He says that the factor offered as an explanation for the wealth gap is the exclusion of blacks from a set of New Deal policies designed to promote home ownership, income growth, and wealth accrual. After World War II, whites received the vast majority of government-backed mortgage loans. By the time the civil rights gains of the 60s made those loans available to blacks, it was too late. The crucial economic boon of the previous two decades, during which housing values rapidly appreciated had already passed, blacks reeling from the effects of redlining and income suppression couldn't enter the housing prices, housing market at its new prices. Wealth in the form of property and inheritances became a birthright for whites and blacks were trapped in poverty. Coleman Hughes says, this story, though based in truth, has been, message, has been massaged to give the false impression that benevolence from the state is a prerequisite for wealth accrual. The accounts even contain some factual errors. It is true that the median income of white men more than tripled between 1939 and 1960, but the median income of black men more than quintupled during that same period. Between 1940 and 1960, the black poverty rate fell from 87% to 47% before any significant civil rights gains were made. Also, the fact is that there have been other groups discriminated against. Starting with the California Alien Land Law of 1913, 14 states passed laws preventing Japanese-American peasant farmers from owning land and property. The laws existed until 1952. There's not a lot of talk about reparations to Japanese Americans over all of that, specifically because Asian Americans overperform in terms of income and wealth accrual. He says historical racism can't explain wealth disparities between groups of the same race either. A 2015 survey of wealth in Boston found that the median black household had only $8 of wealth. But the $8 figure only pertained to black Bostonians of American ancestry. Black Bostonians of Caribbean ancestry had $12,000 of wealth. Despite having identical rates of college graduation, only slightly higher incomes, and being equally black in the same city. He says there's a kernel of truth to the idea that the wealth gap is historically based. But that doesn't mean that the, acti- the, that the vast majority of the wealth gap is attributable to historical discrimination. And so that's what Coleman Hughes writes about, and he gets ripped up and down for all of this. The second contention of the slavery reparations advocates is that this is going to heal wounds. I ask you, is it really going to heal wounds to make white people who had nothing to do with slavery pay black people who were never enslaved? Like, who receives these these payments? Barack Obama, who's never had a slave ancestor? Who who exactly? How are we going to pick this out? And who's going to pay those? Jews who arrived in 1907? Asians who arrived? Irish people, some of whom immigrated to the United States to fight in the Civil War on behalf of freeing slaves? Like, who exactly is going to pay these reparations? How's that going to heal wounds? Finally, there's the argument that this is going to better lives and make lives better. I don't see the evidence that signing an $80,000 check is either going to heal wounds or make lives better. Dropping wealth over folks doesn't just fix the problem. And we've been trying redistributionist policies in this country in the war on poverty since the 1960s. And the poverty gap remains. And so does the racial wealth gap. The fact is the government has tried to solve a lot of these problems over and over again. The Community Reinvestment Act, which largely led to the subprime mortgage crisis, was a direct attempt to address the evils of redlining. The idea was that banks had not been providing black homeowners and potential homeowners with the loans that they should have. Thus, subprime mortgages would be sponsored by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. That happened. And then you know what happened? A lot of people couldn't pay those subprime mortgages and the the mortgage market melted down. 
The government is not always the solution to a historic problem. So there are all sorts of problems here. Not one of these problems that I am pointing out is in any way downplaying the evils of slavery or Jim Crow. But none of this conversation is honest from folks on the left. The conversation is simply that if you don't agree with Ta-Nehisi Coates on slavery reparations, then you also must not agree with Ta-Nehisi Coates that slavery was bad. And that, of course, is idiotic. Okay, time for some things I like and then some things that I hate. So things that I like today. So yesterday was in G- indeed Juneteenth. And every it's a national holiday. It's a state holiday in the state of Texas. It should become a national holiday. The Emancipation Proclamation issued on yesterday's date in 1863. The Emancipation Proclamation is a particularly fascinating document. Lincoln said he thought it was the most important thing he'd ever done. Basically, he was born to do it. The Emancipation Proclamation shifted the nature of the Civil War from a battle about reunifying the Union to a battle about the abolition of slavery. He was urged by his own cabinet not to announce it until after a victorious battle. He did wait until after a victorious battle, and then he threatened the South in late September 1862 that if they did not come back to the table, he would issue the Emancipation Proclamation, and then he went ahead and he did it. He said, whereas on the the 22nd day of September, in the year of our Lord, 1862, a proclamation was issued by the President of the United States containing, among other things, the following to wit, that on the first day of January, in the year of our Lord, 1863, all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state, the people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the United States, shall be then thenceforward and forever free. And the executive government of the United States, including the military and naval authority thereof, will recognize and maintain the freedom of such persons and will do no act to or uh, or acts to repress such persons or any of them in any efforts they may make for their actual freedom. That the executive will on the first day of January by proclamation designate the states and parts of states, if any, in which the people thereof respectively shall then be in rebellion against the United States and the fact that any state or the people thereof shall on that day be in good faith represented represented in Congress of the United States by members shall in the absence of strong countervailing testimony be deemed conclusive evidence that such state and the people thereof are not then in rebellion against the United States. Now, therefore, I, Abraham Lincoln, president of the United States, by virtue of the power in me vested as commander in chief of the army and navy of the United States in time of armed, actual armed rebellion against the authority and government of the United States and as a fit and necessary war measure for suppressing said rebellion, do on this first day of January in the year of our Lord, 1863, and in accordance with my purpose, so to do publicly proclaimed for the full period of 100 days from the first day aforementioned, order and designate as the states and parts of states wherein the people thereof respectively are in this day rebellion against the United States. And then he names all of the various principalities and states that are in rebellion. He says, by virtue of the power and for the purpose of foresight, I do order and declare that all persons held as slaves within said designated states and parts of states are and henceforward shall be free that the executive government of the United States, including the military and naval authorities thereof, will recognize and maintain the freedom of said persons. And I hereby enjoin upon the people so declared to be free to abstain from all violence, unless in necessary self-defense. And I recommend to to them that in all cases when allowed, they labor faithfully for reasonable wages. He's calling for peace, obviously. He says, I further declare and make known that such persons of suitable condition will be received into the armed service of the United States. So he's going to say that black folks could serve in the Union Army as upon this act sincerely believed to be an act of justice warranted by the Constitution upon military necessity, I invoke the considerate judgment of mankind and the gracious favor of Almighty God. Now, one of the things that this was really important in doing, the the Emancipation Proclamation, was keeping the Brits out of the war. So there's a lot of talk about the British entering the war on behalf of the Confederacy in order to split apart the United States. The Emancipation Proclamation, by transforming the war from a war of unification 
a war on the Confederacy, into a war in favor of abolishing slavery, basically kept the Brits out. It basically kept the Europeans out because they were opposed to slavery. And so now they would be on the side of an evil institution rather than on the side of a, of a rebelling part of a nation. A deeply important moment in American history and a transformative moment in American history that we should certainly all celebrate. It's, it, it, this is an amazing country. I'm, I'm, it is. I mean, we have a monument to a president who, we have a massive monument to a president who was able to mobilize a population to fight a war on behalf of freeing a subject people, a people who are enslaved and brutalized. That's an amazing thing. And the fact that the United States has not always lived up to its commitment to its highest ideals, that does not mean that the American people have, have not sought to do so on a broad level or that now the American people are guilty for the sins that have been committed in the past. If we want to live with each other, if we actually want to come together and lead better lives, then reopening wounds by grouping people according to race and suggesting that people who are not guilty for sins pay other people who didn't directly suffer from those sins, that's, that's a very bad way of, of doing this. It's, it's unconstitutional, it's illegal, and it's, and it's negative. We should all be able to celebrate the legacy of the Emancipation Proclamation together, frankly. Okay, time for some things that I hate. So it is pretty impressive how Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez has been able to escape censure from her own party. As I said yesterday, I am just waiting for AOC, the estimable, brilliant AOC, to announce that the earth is flat so that we can hear the media's explanation of why actually she is correct, why actually she is right. Well, it's funny to watch everybody treat her as a child. I mean, other Democrats literally treat her as a child. So there's one representative who yesterday was asked about her, her statements that the, that the detention centers on the border are actually concentration camps, like Holocaust-like concentration camps. And Representative Henry Queller, who is a representative for Texas's 28th Congressional District, he was asked about this, and he explained that AOC just uses words differently than other humans. Her comparison to the Holocaust, and, and especially ending it by saying, never again. Well, uh, again, without due respect to her, she has a different... Uh, usage of words and certain uh, maybe a different perception. I live on the border. I've been to those detention uh, centers. I've been to those shelters, as you know. Uh, if they're adults, they're in detention centers. But if they're children, they are put in shelters that are run by nonprofits. Uh, I would not use the terms that she used and imply anything else after that. She has a different usage, you see. She, she just uses English differently. Remember when Nancy Pelosi said the same thing about Ilhan Omar? So Ilhan Omar is a vicious anti-Semite. And Nancy Pelosi said exactly the same thing about Ilhan Omar. She said, oh, you know, the thing is that she, she just uses words differently than other humans. The incident that happened was, uh, I don't think our colleague is anti-Semitic. I think she has a different experience in the use of words, doesn't understand that some of them are fraught with meaning that she what, didn't realize. But nonetheless, that we had to address. You know, well, one of the things I love right now is how this new class of freshman Democrats, they are being treated like my three-year-old son. I appreciate the enthusiasm, but stop running into walls. They, they, they use words differently. So AOC uses words, words differently. And so does Ilhan Omar. She uses words differently. This is why English should be the official language of the United States, mainly so that people who already speak English should use words the way that humans use words so that we can understand the words that they use. Don't tell me that AOC didn't know what she was saying. She knew exactly what she was saying. And then she was upset that she said it. And so she lied about it. 
And the same thing is true of Ilhan Omar. She knew exactly what she was saying, and then people objected. And then the Democrats came to her defense by pretending that she's a small child. It really is pretty demeaning, frankly. And then Nancy Pelosi was asked yesterday about AOC's ridiculous concentration camp remarks, and here was her explanation. It's all Republicans pouncing everywhere. These members of Congress are, they come and represent their district and their point of view, and they take responsibility for the statements that they make. I'm not up to date on her most recent one. I saw something in the news, but I, um, no, I haven't spoken to her about that. I do have some uh, comments to make to my caucus writ large about the political nature of uh, how politically charged the atmosphere is. So understand uh, that while the Republicans have no interest in holding the president accountable for his words, they will misrepresent anything that you say just if you have one word in the sentence that they can exploit. Oh, it's the Republicans pouncing is the issue. It's, it's pouncy, pouncy, pouncy Republicans, like a group of kittens, ooh, pouncing everywhere. Pounce. It, funny, you know, some of us actually call out the president when he says things that are untrue. I, I make a habit of it here on the show. When the president says something dumb or untrue, I will say that he says something that is dumb or untrue. I will say that the president is lying about things. And some of us actually try to do this. Nancy Pelosi, however, is defending the worst in her own contingent, because obviously she is a political hack. I mean, that is what she's paid to do. The funniest part of this is that our journalistic firefighters are not coming to the defense of Chuck Todd today. So Chuck Todd comes out and he says, yeah, AOC is wrong. These aren't concentration camps. That's absurd. And he was trending last night on Twitter and AOC directly responded to him. And now she and the rest of the media are gaslighting Chuck Todd. So I have to admit that, again, internecine warfare among Democrats and the journalistic establishment are somewhat amusing, but Chuck Todd is correct about this. After being criticized, Ocasio-Cortez tried to make a distinction between concentration camps and Nazi death camps, where the industrialized mass slaughter of the Holocaust occurred. Fair enough, but Congresswoman, tens of thousands were also brutalized, tortured, starved, and ultimately died in concentration camps, camps like Dachau. If you want to criticize the shameful treatment of people at our southern border, fine. You'll have plenty of company, but be careful comparing them to Nazi concentration camps, because they're not at all comparable. Okay, and then AOC responds by smacking Chuck Todd. So now she's just fully gaslighting everyone. She says, well, Chuck Todd, the fact that you slipped in Nazi when I never said that is pretty unfortunate. You know what you did say? It's so funny. The entire media just ignored the part where she said never again in that clip. It's incredible. And she said never again in that clip, which is a specific Holocaust reference. Every no everyone knows that's a specific Holocaust reference. Also, when you say concentration camp, I really doubt that she was talking about the long history of the Boer War. I don't think she knows what that is. I think if you asked her what the Boer War is, she would think it's a cooking show about roasting pork. Like this is, it's ridiculous. She says, Chuck Todd is responsible. I'm going to gaslight you. And he says, almost as unfortunate as the fact that you spent this whole time without discussing DHS freezers, dog pounds, missing children, human rights abuses that uphold use of this term. Yeah, that's right. Chuck Todd is, is not concerned enough about what's happening on the border. It's... It's, it's ridiculous. I'm sorry. This whole thing is ridiculous. But we, I guess we have to, we're going to continue with the myth that AOC knows what she's talking about. The good news is she provides new fodder for Democrats to defend every day. That is increasingly stupid. So she did a, another Instagram Live. And in this Instagram Live, I guess this, is the, this may have been the, was this the same one? She's wearing the same shirt. So I, I assume this is the same one where she suggested that the Holocaust was happening on our southern border. In this same video, she also had some points to make about socialism that are so wildly untrue that I'm looking forward to seeing how the media spin them. A lot of people think about capitalism and they're like, oh, capitalism, 
That means businesses, right? That means a free market, right? That means, um, that means competing uh, for having different products compete on the market, right? That's what capitalism is, right? That's not what capitalism is. Um, you can have free market economies with many, with mixed economies, um, which mixed economies exist. You can have uh, free market economies with democratic socialist businesses. Um, what? So she literally does not know what she is talking about, like at all. Free markets do mean businesses and businesses competing with each other. And they compete because they are, wait for it, free. And when people say capitalism, they just mean that you can invest in these businesses. That's all capitalism is. But according to her, you can have businesses that are democratic socialist businesses. What does that mean? You mean a business run by the state? In other words, subsidized by the state? So in other words, not a free market because it's subsidized by the state? Don't worry, guys. She's so smart. She's, just, she's beyond me. I mean, IQ points up to Wazoo. Just incredible, incredible brilliance from this person. I'm so glad that the Democrats and the media have decided to defend her until the end of time. Enjoy this. You bought the ticket. Take the ride, gang. All right. We'll be back here later today with two additional hours of content. Otherwise, we'll see you here tomorrow. It's a Thursday, so that means tomorrow's the mailbag. So you should go subscribe so you can send me a question. We'll answer it, and we'll have all sorts of fun times. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. The Ben Shapiro Show is produced by Robert Sterling, directed by Mike Joyner, executive producer Jeremy Boring, senior producer Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover, and our technical producer is Austin Stevens, edited by Adam Saievitz. Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Olvera. Production assistant, Nick Sheehan. The Ben Shapiro Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2019. Joe Biden rounds out his very bad week with all sides attacking him. Sparks fly at the reparations hearing on Capitol Hill and homelessness destroys America's best cities. Finally, the mailbag. Check it out on The Michael Knowles Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. 